I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. As you're probably aware, today is the 100th anniversary of the death of Proust. So we thought, what better way to mark that occasion by comparing his masterpiece unfavorably with A Dance to the Music of Time by Anthony Pohl. Actually, that wasn't our idea. That was Perry Anson's idea, of course, first published in the LRB in 2018 and now published as a book by Verso. By Verso and the LRB, in fact, this is the first in what will hopefully become an ongoing series reflecting the virtuous circle of uh, books published by Verso that begin as pieces that were published in the LRB, a relationship that nobody exemplifies better than Perry Anderson, who, of course, needs no introduction. And we're delighted that tonight he'll be joined by one of the only people who has contributed as many brilliant words to the archive of the LRB as Perry himself, John Lanchester, for a conversation about Pohl and Proust via Perry. And without further ado, please welcome Perry Anson and John Lanchester. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, everybody, for coming out um, on the 100th anniversary of Proust's death. Hopefully, we're not going to kill him off again. Um, I, um, I was thinking how to introduce Perry and the phrase that the word that came to mind was unequaled and then it occurred to me that actually that's a kind of category mistake because not only is Perry's body of work unequal there's actually no one to compare it with um, because of its range and scope from his the year 1974 in which Perry published not one but two incredibly important and, con and consequential books that's anyone who's feeling a bit underproductive to say, you know, two books one year. Um, Passages from Antiquity to Feudalism and Lineages of the Absolutist State. And since then, he's written not just on topics of local interest and Western European interest and Marxist interest and historical materialism and active political engagement and Gramsci and things like that. But he's written whole books about India and Brazil and has written with extraordinary fluency and comprehensiveness and a range of political historical, uh, sociological and, and linguistic knowledge about extraordinary range of subjects. Um, and in a culture where the general idea of what a polymath looks like is Stephen Fry, this is actually what a polymath looks like. Um, but this is, a, this is a, a, a turn for you, Perry, this book. I remember Carl Miller once saying when, um, your, when English Questions came out, he, he came into the office and he'd just been reading your, your piece about the overview of literary culture and he, he quoted a thing about the two leading critics in the two daily papers you described as respectively i won't identify them but as a stage bore and professional pressier i remember him laughing and saying perry could you know make a whole career as a literary critic if he wanted to it's a it's a pity he's never done it and and now you have and i i wondered what what why and and why now well john's uh, career is a stretch certainly let me say this uh, at school, when I was a schoolboy, I was uh, the one subject which really uh, fascinated me was history, and that's what I sort of specialised in, so far as one could do that at the time. But in my and I really had virtually no non-literary culture at all, unlike, for example, my brother or other members of my family. But in my last year, by a strange kind of accident, I came upon the. Uh, trilogy by Jean-Paul Sartre uh, uh, entitled The Roads to Freedom. And I can remember vividly the very first page, I you know, read it completely astounded and sort of fell in love and so on with, you know, it was like a, almost a religious conversion, which could, could happen to you. So I think something that uh, T.S. Eliot talks about, the kind of psychological experience you can have of being hugely impressed by someone at an early age. So that's what uh, uh, happened to me. And when I got to university, uh, I went on a sort of history ticket, 
but history at Oxford, where I was, uh, the history course was staggeringly provincial and boring. It was just basically Bishop Stubbs on the constitution, constitutional history. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's uh, stifling. I would like, what, what did, was Sartre doing other than writing novels? He was a philosopher, so I'll do philosophy. So I eagerly uh, uh, started to study what I thought was going to be philosophy. But of course, at Oxford, then as now, you actually can't do philosophy as such. You do politics, uh, philosophy, and uh, economics, PPE, uh, which is more accurately described by many of those who've suffered from it as a pretty poor education, <laughs> I have to say. And I loathed it and so on. Actually, the first terms, terms one didn't even do the, the rote uh, curriculum, of, uh, which was just Locke, Berkeley, and Hume. That was it and so on. And after that, a bit of Wittgenstein, but fundamentally it's those trio. All you did initially was symbolic logic, Boolean symbolic logic, like a branch of mathematics, which I was anyway hopeless at. So, I mean, I revolted strongly against that. Uh, and uh, in my second or maybe third term, I uncorked a kind of youthful tirade against Oxford philosophy in the local student magazine of considerable violence, I mean, uh, I have to say. And whereupon I was summoned by my tutor who said, you are obviously quite unhinged. You're mentally sick, and I'm going to send you down. And you go and see the, the head of the college and so on about this. I was lucky because the head of the college was himself indisposed. He was a former uh, spy master of, MI, I think, M, M, MI6, and so on, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, he was, probably would have you know, done his duty. And in his stead, his vice, the vice provost, was a military gentleman, totally unacademic looking, with big handlebar moustaches, Colonel Wilberson. And he greeted me with the words, you don't get on with your tutor, I understand. Is that right? I muttered, as was the effect, well, yes, there could be something to that. He said, I quite understand uh, immediately. And it reassured me that there was no question of my being kicked out of the university. I could do something else. And I then said, well, I'll do, I'll do a, a literary topic, literature, and picked uh, uh, French and Russian literature. So that my formation, in effect, at Sonnet University was in uh, literature. It wasn't in history. It wasn't in uh, politics at all. And I was very lucky, I will say just briefly, because the Two tutors I had, I was unaware of their identity completely, of course, beforehand. One, the French tutor, as it were, was someone who uh, was a kind of a, an interlocutor of uh, Leo Spitzer in some way, in manner I discovered afterwards. And so he was a, a specialist on stylistics, which was not practiced and so on in the, generally in English universities. And the other one uh, was uh, uh, my Russian tutor, was somebody who was an enthusiast for Russian formalism. So I got kind of Leo Spitzer and uh, Viktor Shklovsky very uh, before, basically they were known scarcely at all at the university, which was a great good fortune uh, uh, for me. Um, otherwise, then my, I suppose you could say my third bit of luck there was that my first girlfriend at uh, uh, Oxford uh, was uh, uh, Juliet Mitchell, who was uh, uh, literally was doing English literature, and immediately afterwards got a couple of jobs in, uh, as was possible in those days, uh, uh, in uh, uh, English universities. And in her second job, but that was only a year after we sort of, as it were, got together, she was invited to contribute to a volume on Henry James, and the. Everyone was given one novel of Henry James to read, and she was assigned uh, a novel by James, which is not one of his best known, but uh, is an extremely good novel, The Tragic Muse. It's also his, probably his most genuinely feminist novel. It's where the, the woman, I mean, women f do f figure very positively in most of James's writing, but this is the one which is probably is, is the best in that. So uh, uh, I, I, you know, benefited certainly... Uh, uh, from that, so you could say my, I don't know, my first love, but my formation was literary rather than anything else. I always thought it's very interesting that word formation. It's a continental word that sort of includes education, but is more, more encompassing than that. So, given that um, 
literary formation. Um, why why is Pole the occasion for your your first book length engagement? Well, um, yeah, let me think about that. Uh, I mean, when one, uh, I think, in thinking about one's liking for or admiration for a writer, one should always ask oneself what it is in oneself that actually uh, is the basis of the attraction. Why is it, and in particularly, you know, you're taken with this particular writer, um, and. As I think I say in, in, the, in the book, there are really two questions there. One is that obviously taste, literary taste, is a matter of temperament, which is entirely individual and is untransferable. If somebody says, I like A or I like B, you're not going to persuade them otherwise and so on by, you know, with just a different taste. It's obvious it isn't. So you can't quarrel really about that. But then there's always a second element as well in a liking or an aversion for that matter, which is to do with one's background and the period and, and you know, historical period one is reading and or encountering a writer. So in there, on the second uh, uh, issue, background and so on, I obviously uh, uh, friends or other people would, would say to me quite readily, well, uh, Perry, it's not very surprising you're, you're attracted to Pole because, after all, uh, uh, you went to Eton. You're a product of the same kind of class and, and, and cultural background as he was, and so on. And that that uh, that makes sense, and so on. But as it happens, although I did go to the same school as Pole did, and so on, sixty more more years earlier, uh, partly the school itself had changed, but it's also the case that uh, my experience. Of the school was completely uh, different from his, um, in be simply because my uh, family background was uh, so different, and I it came to the school having never lived in England, and I didn't live in England ever uh, until I was twenty-one. Uh, the family came from China, from the United States, and and Ireland, more or less, in that sequence. So I was. I wouldn't say an outsider, I didn't feel like that, but certainly at a very big angle to the rest of the school and so on in my, my contemporaries. And uh, I was rebellious by temperament and caused quite a bit of trouble and so on, as it were, in railing against school institutions and much else there. Although enjoying the school had many good qualities and I enjoyed it being there. But at any rate, uh, uh, sort of cut a long story short, uh, by the end, I had, as it were, uh, alarmed the authorities uh, sufficiently that they kind of uh, gave me the equivalent of a kind of golden handshake and said, we've got some money for a special scholarship. Don't you want to leave early? And, which I was quite happy to do so. So, so I did leave and it's on a, a bit early uh, uh, on doing that. Um, and my final, the gesture, which I can remember, and that's kind of would be, uh, uh, Pearl would certainly have been uh, 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 ironically amused and so on by this. Uh, if my final gesture at the school, it's just to indicate the nature of the relationship, was uh, in, the, in the scholarship section, which is called the college within the, the Eden School, uh, there was a, a, a leather, large leather-bound book, it was actually a sequence of books, which was called the Veli book, where those who had been at the college at the end of their time wrote, as it were, their, as it were, romantic, sentimental, philosophical, whatever it is, reflections on their experience and about the school. It was a much treasured, as it were, uh, you know, album. Uh, and it epitomized uh, for me everything that was worst about uh, the institution in its self-regard. Uh, and so on my, roughly my last or penultimate day there, I took this book, which we were allowed to, each one was allowed to you know, have it and read it for a bit, with a friend, marched up uh, to the uh, bridge over the nearby the river, which separates the Eton from uh, Windsor, and threw this Veiley book, this precious object, into the river, uh, a bit like it's kind of if those of you who've read 
uh, 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 I think it's the Hearing Secret Harmonies, uh, uh, Paul's last uh, volume of his uh, dance. It was a bit like the sort of uh, gestures which the Quigging twins and so on are mocked for, as it were, as it were, they're thinking that they're going to, you know, create trouble and so on in their thing. But so uh, I mention this only because when I, over 60 years later, I had nothing to do with the school or since leaving it, but I was out of the blue invited to go along to a kind of an, a, a drinks occasion of old colleges, so to speak, and I thought, well, why not? I'll see what it's like in some London club. I went along, didn't know anybody there, and then suddenly there emerged a figure who was in the year above me, and he said, he went up and he said, Anderson, you have a nerve. What brought you here? To apologize? So I took it in good part and so on. It was you know, quite fun. But anyway, I'm just explaining that as yeah. a sort of background, that it wasn't a sort of, you know, a, you know a, an affection, all that uh, an unambiguously affectionate relationship. Okay. So what about coming back to Pearl and uh, my uh, uh, first perception of him? It was not at all, as it were, you know, well, there's another, you know, Old Etonian, and I must read him at Oxford when I got there. Pole was a, like a kind of cult figure of uh, many bright undergraduates, I would say, but above all of two who were uh, working class, pure working class products. Dennis Potter, the famous uh, television dramatist, and his colleague, Ken Trodd, who was actually his producer, and they were real Pearlites and so on. You couldn't you know, move without, as it were, uh, uh, hearing about Pearl because of them. I, that, I, I thought, well, God, that's really, I, that turns me off completely. I don't want to have anything to do with that. But then one, you know, week, I fell very uh, sick with uh, very high flu, and there was nothing to read in the house except I was sharing digs with other, two others, uh, except a copy of, uh, I think, the first of Paul and the question of upbringing. I thought, well, God, I've got to, I have to read that, and I might as well store up some ammunition for the next execution, which I'm going to deliver of the folly of people to be in, so enthusiastic about Paul. I read it, and I did feel incredulous and indignant that this could be so much uh, uh, favoured by my contemporaries. But I was still sick. I had to stuck in bed, so... I had to read, I got the second one, uh, and about a third of the way through the second one, I was, you know, captive completely. So that's more or less the history of my, um, my relationship uh, uh, to Pearl. I mean, uh, as to, uh, biographically, how I came to admire and, and to like Pearl. I, obviously, it had something to do as well. I said, you know, when you read a, a novel uh, is important for understanding how one reacts to it, because I must have been 21, I think, when I, when I read uh, uh, the first two novels uh, by Pearl. And of course, they describe more or less exactly that particular passage moment and so on, of which you pass from sort of adolescence <laughs> to, uh, to uh, you know, very early uh, adulthood. And that probably you know, influence, that influenced me. You could sort of not identify with the characters, but with the experience and so on of, of uh, being a young person going for the first time to London and trying to make your way away in the big city. So I think that would be the, the, uh, the other side of the, of, the, of, the, of the relationship. Of course, then it, it takes a lot more than that uh, uh, to, you know, appreciate fully and so on what, is in literary terms in front of you in, in, in this great, very, I think very broad, long novel. Broadly speaking, though, I, I th he hasn't really had his due. I think you and I would both agree that he hasn't had his due in terms of, you know, even the comparison poll and Proust, some people would take as, yeah. I mean, not me, but some people would take those contentious, mentioning in the same context. I mean, there is something about his work that people, about his work or about the idea of him that people resist. Yeah, I think he's very often... Um, uh, much disliked as a kind of aversion to Pearl, which I think is very, very common. Uh, I would say I think that there are 
are two main stumbling blocks um, for many people in thinking about or in reading poll. The stumbling blocks are not quite the same if you're uh, uh, English or British and if you're foreign. Um, but, uh, uh, and I think one needs to make a distinction there, but the first of the stumbling blocks is obviously what you could call uh, class and gender questions. Um, because uh, the local resistance to uh, Pohl is very often that he is simply too visibly the product of a privileged uh, and now pretty anachronistic upper class. Um, you know, and his novels reflect this uh, 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 narrow, uh, uh, possibly complacent, and uh, certainly now out of date uh, uh, background. So it's kind of perceived very widely by the both people who have tried Pole and people who haven't as kind of toffs uh, literature, I think. But it's important to make the point that that's not fair in terms of the range. It isn't, of course it isn't. As I've tried to explain that at length in the, in the, uh, in the book on, uh, on, on Pearl. It's uh, his actual range of characterization and the, the, the strata of society he discusses is incredibly broad and so on. I mean, in a deep and broad, so uh, it isn't fair, but I, I'm saying it's, an, I, I think it's quite a natural kind of uh, prejudice, if you like. Um, there's also kind of, that's a slightly lesser thing you could say that, uh, uh, you know, this is surely, it's an, a novel by a, a, a white male, it's male literature. And although there are, it's true, plenty of women in the novel, they're perceived and so on with a kind of masculine eye. So that's also a kind of limiting factor and so on for many, I think for many, uh, for many uh, uh, feminine or female readers. Um, so that's, I think, a double stumbling block is the sort of apparent class exclusivity, which is an illusion, and the kind of more real, uh, but as it were, less, uh, much less uh, damaging, if you like, and so on as a, as a, as a, as a criticism of the novel and so on. I mean, or less, less widely held uh, a criticism is, is, it's, is the fact that the author is, was a man of his generation. Among foreigners, it's a different matter because there, foreigners, obviously, if you're not uh, English or British, you don't feel these same kind of strong uh, uh, aversion and hostility to uh, what was the traditional ruling class of this country. Uh, but what you do feel, if you read Pearl, I think, and many people who are not English see that, is this is a class structure, you know, which he is describing, and as it were, the novel proceeds in, which is so opaque, so complicated, so many different nuances and gradations within it, that in a way it's impassable. It's not, you could something, you, you can't, it's very alien, it remains alien. You're not necessarily averse to it, but it's just very alien. And that's, of course, a very big difference with Proust. It's not, I mean, that's something I try to write about, is why Proust is so much more accessible uh, uh, universally accessible than than Pohl is, so I think that those would be the two, uh, 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 um, you know, native and 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 uh, uh, foreign reactions to the first stumbling block. Then there is a second uh, stumbling block, which is I think I also try to uh, talk about, which is specifically local, which is this that though Pohl is, for the reasons just explained, supremely English as a writer, um, he also uh, is, um, you know, I would say, uh, threateningly, you could say, uh, 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 ominously, if you like, non-English as well as a writer. And the reason for that is the kind of analytic intelligence which is on almost every page of uh, a Pohl's uh, a fiction. Um, it's a hallmark of his great novel, The Dance, The Music of Time. Now, uh, sharp character analysis of individual characters is, of course, quite a common feature of uh, English uh, literature, English fiction as a whole. It's not at all peculiar to uh, 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 Pohl. Uh, but 
a generalizing analytic intelligence and so on, which is a mind that is continually kind of, as it were, seeing the, the universal, the very general, the widespread in the particular and so on, which is, uh, was a gift that uh, Pohl had. That's something which is much more frequent in uh, a continental, especially French literature, than I think it is in, in English. And that can give what I think of as a sort of slightly unsettlingly intellectual edge to uh, uh, Pohl's uh, uh, fiction, which leaves, you know, I think quite a few readers uh, who are English less than comfortable uh, uh, with, can put readers off, I think. So in that sense, the problem with Pohl is that it's not that he's too English, it's that he's too European a writer for many English readers for their habits of reading, I think. And uh, it, that, of course, is connected to the fact that he, his, actual, his own reading, his own personal culture was uh, 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 European to an extent which I think virtually no writer of his generation in England had. It included, of course, uh, uh, all the Russian uh, uh, writers and so on whom he admired, uh, Dostoevsky, Lyamontov, Saltikov, Shed, Shetrin, and others. It included, uh, uh, obviously, the many French writers, not least Proust, but including Balzac, Constant, Stendhal, and so forth, uh, uh, Apollinaire and others. It included uh, 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 Italians like uh, 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 Svevo and uh, Nievo, and it even included an Austrian like Robert Musil. So he had a, a very wide range of uh, his literary culture, was, as it were, steeped in European literature. And, of course, he himself... Uh, uh, had traveled quite a bit. He knew Europe, I mean, and, and the countries he knew and had visited feature in his fiction, and that's in the pre-war novels. You get the Baltics in Venusburg, you get Germany in Agents and Patients, uh, you get France, obviously, in the uh, uh, military philosophers, you know, the visit to Cabourg and so on, Pus Balbeck, and you get uh, uh, Venice in the uh, Temporary Kings. So that all of Europe is very, very present and so on to uh, uh, Pearl's fiction in a way that I don't think is true of, of uh, m m or not many English writers. You, you, you mentioned, you talked about Proust, Proust's appeal being more universal, which is, it's interesting and strange, isn't it? Because you can make the same criticism of Proust in terms of the narrow, I mean, his, his world is much narrower. Yeah. Than, than Pohl. People might think of Pohl as an upper class, living in an upper class bubble, which he doesn't at all. Yeah. But Proust really did live in a bubble, almost literally. And, you know, his gaze is as white and as male as it gets. And yet at the same time, as you say, there is a sort of, um, his work has, was perceived to have a kind of universality. How do you, how do you parse that? Well, I think it's partly to do with the fact that uh, he's not very interested in, uh, uh, I mean, there's something of that, but it's not uh, a, a, a major feature, I wouldn't say, of the novel, in the actual social distinctions within. It's because it's a fairly uniform sort of, you know, aristocratic world that he's depicting and so on. Therefore, the, 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 the gradations within it and the differences between it and the rest of the society, they're, they're noted and so on, but they're not, as it were, anything like us, as it were, omnipresent. And you make the point that some of the ancillary characters are just sort of footman number two yeah. in a very kind of programmatic way. They are, yeah, absolutely, yeah. The chambermaid, you know, the butler and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, that's, that's certainly true. So I, I would say that's uh, uh, an aspect of... Uh, of, uh, of Proust. And then there's this other, the other aspect of Proust, which is universally appealing, is that uh, he sort of, he has a kind of an ontology and so on of what it is, what human life is like and so on, and which uh, is, uh, uh, is not specifically connected with anything French and so on as such and, uh, at all, uh, and is expanded in very, very emphatic universalistic terms. So, you know, his account of what the various the dominant emotions and experiences of life are, are presented in a magnificent prose, but without, as it were, kind of, as it were, their uh, 
if you like, their mediation or incarnation in specific social patterns and so on or are to the same extent. I think that's an important feature of, of uh, the, the universal appeal of... Uh, so of, paradoxically, the fact that pole is more specific, more detailed, the characters are more embodied, they're more in their historical moment, there are more of them, they, they, there's more range. That paradoxically is a kind of limiting factor. Uh, yeah, I think you could say that. Yes, uh, I think that's uh, uh, that's that's uh, that's that's correct. Yes, because um, it's quite because it, I, I, I should no, I said on. I'd say this that no. um, uh, you know when you criticise Paul Hans Keller, who is a great musicologist, he used to write for the LRB and write about football as well. He would um, write things like explaining why Beethoven's Fifth Symphony wasn't very good, and then he said, "But this is criticism at a very high level." Uh, and something similar you have to say about Proust. It's not that you're, oh, you're yeah, putting no, it down, obviously. but there are some specific comparisons where you think Pole comes out ahead. And I think that's part of what people found so bracing and challenging about the pieces when they were in the paper, that especially over questions about, I, I was particularly struck by change. You know, that you talk about the range from everything from, you know, Sarajevo, assassination of Sarajevo to the arrival of the hippies. Uh, via you know, Munich, invasion of Russia. And these aren't just sort of minor things that happen in the background. They're actually fundamental moments that affect the lives of the characters uh, in a way that doesn't really have a, a comparison in Proust. Is that right? No, in Proust, the, the universe is completely static, I think. I mean, it, there are a few, the fun, you know, the telephone arrives and so on, and the zero planes and so on, which there aren't at the beginning, but uh, otherwise it remains essentially uh, uh, unaltered and so on. And the war, which does feature in the, of course, in the in the, in the novel, but it's it's background. It's not something which, as you were, transforms the lives of anybody in particular. How highly do you rate Pole's War trilogy? Well, it's the 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 part of the uh, uh, trilogy which I, uh, I was initially coolest about when I first read it. But I wouldn't actually say that uh, today, although it's true that the number of uh, new characters who sort of start to crowd the stage, and certainly in the, th in the third of, the, of the, those, that trilogy, uh, does become uh, rather high, and he's unable to kind of, as it were, give them the depth and so on, and, and the, the, the degree of color which they can have and so on, and in, Many of the other volumes, um, <clears throat> but that's the that's the uh, uh, part of the dance in which he's, in my view, now <clears throat> he successfully <clears throat> modulates, if you like, the uh, very buoyant, uh, overwhelmingly comic aspects and so on of the first, as it were, as it were, least and so on, five of the novels and so on. The sixth one on, on the eve of the war is already getting a bit dark. But and that's a more general thing. I mean, if one saying what does one admire in in uh, why why do I admire uh, Pole? It's partly that uh, it's a great work of art, which is also a comic work of art. And there aren't all that many in which comedy, as it were, is as pervasive and so on a register as in uh, the dance and it's a nevertheless it's a register which doesn't remain uh, unaltered and it, it I mean there's two things to be said about comedy in, in I would say uh, in Pearl one is that the comedy is never um, it, it doesn't lapse into either crudity or frivolity in the way that, for example, if you think of Evelyn Waugh's uh, 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 comedy, uh, it can be very entertaining and funny, but it can also be uh, extremely uh, uh, crude and so on. It's not, as it were, and even not particularly funny. If you think of the, particularly the first uh, volume of the uh, of his uh, Sword of Honor. Or oh, the uh, water. Ap Apsorps, uh. Yeah, the Apsorps, uh, the Thunderbox. I mean, it's really, please, it's, it's terrible, absolutely. Yeah. So he, there's nothing like that to be found in Pearl, nor is there, and that would be the other extreme, is there the kind of purely, you know, the note of frivolity, and very entertaining, it's fine in its own right, but it's uh, obviously 
a much lighter weight value, which you find, for example, in P.G. Woodhouse, who was a you know immensely skilled writer, but still, it's that isn't the kind of uh, uh, comedy which you find in in uh, in Pole. And so Pole's, as it were, comedy remains, if you like, and so on, the overall dominant, but uh, it allows for it on equal terms uh, are, are the, uh, uh, the, the grim, uh, uh, the ominous, and the tragic, and so on, which there's certainly plenty of in the, in the novel. Uh, I mean, there's quite a lot of comedy in Proust, too, but the, there's a thing that Edmund Wilson, I think it was actually a review of one of the first volumes um, of Proust, he, t he talked, about, talked about how, you know, it's easy to miss that it's funny. And he talks about the comedy being quite broad, and he specifically mentions Dickens and a kind of theatrical tradition. And uh, thinking about your book and thinking about the, the, the dialectic between Pell and Proust, one of the things that occurred to me was that in a funny way, there are aspects of Proust which are more like the, a certain kind of set piece and a certain kind, to use the cliche, larger than life yeah. comedy that you get. I mean, there's... Some of it is very funny. I mean, I remember there's a brilliant thing when um, the Duchess of Guermont, well, who's a complete airhead and, you know, social butterfly, and she goes silent at one point, and they're worried. Ariane, what's the matter? And she says, I'm worried about China. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, you know, it is cartoon-like. And whereas, whereas Pole's comedy is, it's like Lyamontov to Genev, Svevo, it, it's in a slightly different yeah. key. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think that's good, accurate and so on. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Much of uh, 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 Proust's comedy is very funny very often, but it is quite broad and there's no great. It depends on kind of cat, it depends on satire a great deal. Whereas, curiously enough, in Pole, there isn't really, it isn't really satirical and so on. And you make the point that because a lot of Proust's comedy is about. Hip hypocrisy and snobbery, yeah. and those are basically universal. Yeah, that, absolutely. That, you know, anyone can identify. Yeah, that. absolutely, sure. Um, this thing about Pole as a sort of displaced, as a European writer out of, you know, who's not being read in a European tradition. Do you think that's why he, because you talked about your own background, um, and I, I have Irish. My mother was Irish. I grew up mainly in Hong Kong. Um, and I rate Pole in the same way that you do, and that the, the locals don't, by and large. And do you think that that, that is part of this element of dislocation, and not exactly deracination, but he's everyone thinks it's the most English book in the world, but actually it's in a European tradition. Do you think that's partly why it appeals to people who are not quite straightforwardly angry? You know, who might look Anglo-English, but actually aren't. Yeah, I think that is probably correct. Yeah, I think even in the United States, it's on get easier to find admirers of Pole in, in some ways than it is in England, and so on. It's true, which appears paradoxical, but I think that's right. So, as, as listening to some of the things that you you stress about him, his ability to describe social change, his his skill with dialogue, which is that. Extraordinary, extraordinary incredibly yeah. concise characterizations just in fragments of words. Um, the range of characters, and there's a very striking thing you talk about the variety and equity of his characters that he gives people their weight and their significance. And then the astonishing things he does with plot, where um, you meet, you know, Stringham says that. In, very early in book one about Widdenpool, that boy will be the death of me. And eight books, eight novels later, Widdenpool actually is. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with, I think, almost no parallel at all in fiction. It's what sort of 20 year gap between yeah. planting that and then. Absolutely, John. It raises the very, very fascinating and, and you know, puzzling question of whether, how far. Pohl actually planned in detail the whole novel in advance because it's very, I think he himself even says that initially he only thought of six novels or something like that. He didn't have the whole thing at all and didn't plan the whole thing. But, it, you know, there are so many things that are said very early on, little, they're not clues exactly, but just incidents, details, which then, you know, you can see the significance of. 
you know, yeah. very much later and so on. Yeah, Which he, he always denied, didn't he? He said he hadn't planned yeah. 12 books from the start. No, absolutely, it's... yeah. Um, and then even little things like um, Pamela Flitton being sick at a wedding yeah. in sort of book three and being sick again like eight books later. I mean, it's an astonishing thing. So you have all those things. And is the secret ingredient, there's a point you make that he's, it's the level of his interest in people that's so unusual about Paul. Yeah. And that, that is one of the, again, dialectical differences yeah. with Proust. Yeah, it's amazing that, yeah. No, it's, this is certainly true. I mean, I think with Proust, I mean... He, Obviously, he, you know, fell in love with others and so on, men and so on. But, and he did regard, I mean, he had a kind of, you know, treated people to some extent, those and so on, who he knew in the, in the society he moved in as kind of interesting specimens of one kind or another. But uh, fundamentally, he was so fascinated with himself and he had a very, very enriching, you know, personality and so on. By, but I think that others and so on, as it were, you know, are accessories in a, in a way that, that they're clearly not in in uh, in, in in Pearl. They're never accessories in Pearl. Okay, I'm about to open it up for questions, but I, I was very one thing I'd like to read um, that I was very very struck by is about this sort of particular dialectic. Had Proust been less indifferent in his fiction to the existence of others, the scruples of the intellect, the flux of history, he could not have created the vaulting interior universe of sensuous perception and emotion, a subjectivity unbound and hitherto unimaginable of his novel. But that's a hell of a trilogy of things to be indifferent to, isn't it? The existence of others, the scruples of the intellect, the flux of history. I mean, well, yeah, but that's only half the sentence. Yeah, it's true. But that's a sort of extraordinary. I mean, isn't that why Proust is a kind of freak? I mean, there's that thing, I think, was it, was it, Lawrence said about Balzac that he was an enormous dwarf, you know, shaken but colossal, um, and that something similar is, is true of Proust because you know he's not interested in other people, he's not interested in history, and he changes his mind all the time about what he actually thinks. And nonetheless, it's this astonishing yeah. masterpiece of of in, presumably because it, his project is all about interiority. I mean, on that crucial point of interest in others, Proust's interest finally is in himself. And it, the astonishing thing is that that turns out to be enough. Uh, yes, although you uh, that's very well put, but you'd have to add that uh, he had a, 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 an, an extraordinary, as it were, interest in an eye for landscape, for painting. So the external world is is, as it were, represented within the novel with extraordinary power and vividness and so on, I would say. So that, that's, that has to be said against, uh, you know, the, as it were, the, that was the non-narcissistic side of Proust. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that I, 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 do, I do take it as a thing about interiority, that that's the sort of great shift in the modern area of interest. And, and it's one of the ways in which Pole is actually, curiously, a less modern writer, that he's on the other end of that. Yeah. He's still looking out. Although you, there you have to, yeah, this is true. Although the modern comes in different uh, 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 sort of shapes and forms, because after all, Hemingway was regarded as the modern writer and so on of the 20s and so on very often. And that, that's where Pearl gets his sort of the exteriority and so on side of Pearl comes from. And some of the dialogue too, sort of modulated through Furbank. Uh, yeah, exactly. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, um, questions, questions. You have a roving microphone. Um, because this is an LRB book, I can do this. Um, uh, first person to ask a question gets a copy of the book. <laughs> You're paying for it, John. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, isn't the key difference between the two books is the paradoxical nature of the narrators? Because Proust is all narrator, even though we don't know his name. Jenkins, we know, but we actually learn very little about Jenkins himself. Isn't that a really major difference? Uh, I, I'm not entirely in agreement with that because I think you do learn quite a bit about Jenkins himself in the first uh, four of the of the novels. It's when he gets starts when he becomes married at that point. Then, as it were, certainly he you know the his interior life and so on recedes completely and so on. But it's quite present and so on in the and it, it gives the flavour of all the early volumes of the novel and so on are very much determined by the character of uh, of Jenkins and his own, he describes his own feelings and so on, his experiences and so on, as it were, you know, continually, I would say. I, w I don't think you'd, you, there, it, what you could say, I suppose, is that it comes rather late that you learn about his childhood. It's not there at the beginning and so on, which Proust it starts and so on in childhood, whereas Paul's description of his uh, childhood, and that, of course, again, is the adult world seen through the eyes of the of the child. That only comes and so on in the uh, sixth novel and so on. So it doesn't. It's much later. Do you like Jenkins as a you know? Do you warm to him? Because one of the things I, I noticed rereading it, I don't know what your view about this is, but I find him. You sort of see it through his eyes at first, but there's something sort of manipulative and feline and voyeuristic about him. I, Increasingly, feel when I reread it. That's interesting. No, I hadn't. I, that's not a, 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 a perception I've had as such. Could you give me an example, John, of what you think it would be? Well, even partly there's that very interesting thing about you know Widmerpool, who's this permanent outsider, and and this thing when you trace it back, the reason everyone thinks he's such a weird alien is that he has something. His coat is buttoned slightly differently. And yeah. that's 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 enough, you know. Jenkins is perfectly happy with that. Uh, I wouldn't say that's well. It's a common since it's the common school Moyer reaction he's <laughs> describing. Yeah. It's not specific. I wouldn't say to Jenkins. I do think that the figure of Widmerpool is a great creation, and is, the, even those and so on who uh, detest Pearl or, or dismiss him will generally concede that Widmerpool is an extraordinary creation. He is an extraordinary creation, uh, but I do think there, I think that's uh, it's also a potential weakness of uh, Pearl's novel because somehow he he combines too many uh, sort of obnoxious uh, 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 qualities uh, with a, a kind of suspect uh, uh, a social background. I mean, that grates a bit. Well, when he's actually committing treason, it gets a bit weird, you know. <laughs> Yes, yeah, another question. Um, I find Pearl surprisingly apolitical, given the times from which he lived and the range of his friendship. Well, why do you think this is? I don't think he was apolitical. I think he was, you know, obviously he was conservative throughout his life. And I think he was very apolitical up till uh, the... Second World War, but in the Second World War, he was of course serving in the War Office, and from that moment onwards, I think he was highly political. I mean, uh, uh, you can find that as is. I mean, it's very, very marked actually in the novel itself and so on, which is uh, his descriptions and so on of uh, what. Jenkins is doing and observing and so on in the war office towards the end. And it's there, of course, in the treasonous villainy of Widmerpool in, uh, in, in Venice. Um, I, I think Pearl was an extremely, extremely political person. And of course, in his, uh, uh, um, his memoirs and his journals even more, they're filled with, you know, uh, right-wing politics and so on of a very very strong sort and so on. I would I would say so. No, I don't think he was un unpolitical. I compare him in the book and so on a bit to someone like Sartre, who was also unpolitical before the Second World War, but was very politicized by the war. 
although in the opposite direction he went over to the far left, whereas uh, Pohl, from a kind of, you know, rather banally and mildly conservative standpoint, uh, which he'd had, uh, you know, but not very political before the war, he became, as it were, really, a, 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 you know, a little bit what the, the French would call bleu horizon, a real deep blue and so on, as it were, of a kind of which, uh, uh, you know, there's less of that in the book than there might be, though, given, you know, as you, you say, I mean, he's a full-on high Tory um, from sort of 50s onwards, and that's when he's writing the novels. And the novels don't, you wouldn't... Absolutely I mean, not. Certainly when you look at someone like War, whose yeah. politics are written... No, he's him. incredibly restrained. I agree with you. That's a very remarkable thing. It's, it's, it, is, it is, I mean, it, it partly it conforms, I think, to his precept, to his belief that you know, even a character who is, as it were, uh, um, uh, so to speak, a, a, a not very uh, attractive character whom you're creating in a novel has to be given some good point. You can't be go all the way and so on and just paint them black, paint them pure black. Yeah. And I think that that probably restrains him a bit. Oh, interesting. Sorry, there was a question there. I think the thing which struck me most about them, about Jenkins is his emotional absence from his own life and everything he's he talks about he's practically never there even when he's talking about you know getting married having children falling in love they're they're very light on emotion that he's got a huge amount of professional i think probably class detachment from what goes on yes i mean he says he's, he says himself he describes himself as a uh, not a voyeur not sexually but in in relation to life that's a sort of accurate thing about him isn't he it's one of his he doesn't have all that many moments of talking about himself but that is one of them isn't it Do you remember that i don't remember that that's interesting no i don't i don't remember that passage that i should uh, actually should, though have you said that maybe that it's Paul who says that maybe that's in the memoir it's also structurally the case that a, a, a very long novel with a single narrator has to have someone who does a lot of watching and observing yeah, yeah. it's one of the reasons that um the old adaptation of Brideshead is so terrible because it's carried by Jeremy Irons who, who ne actually never says or does anything in the book <laughs> it's 12 hours 12 episodes long really. yeah the thing that worries me is the um the question of translation um because Proust famously has been badly translated or so we believe I don't speak it in French I've never read Proust in French and uh you know all the translations have been panned in different ways from Scott Moncrief onwards and also, um, I think to some extent, it might explain maybe Pohl's lack of international recognition, because uh, it always seems to me you could um, you could almost play a sort of a recherche, try to get them both in, a sort of recherche parlor game with with Pohl in that how would Antony have put it? Because he, he he puts these very um, common situations, but that he, he has this very oratund kind of detached prose to describe it which even in the 50s would have been fairly antiquated so you know th there's th th there's a kind of thing so so we're, we're we're not really comparing like with like are we we're comparing a kind of a french author with a, a, a french a french text and an english author who maybe doesn't translate well into french or any other language so you know how does that affect you know if you, if you want to have a comparison or even what they always do these days, a competition. No, well, I, I think that the, uh, 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 there's it, it a huge difficulty in translating uh, Pole into, uh, into other languages. I point out that, I mean, if you look at the first page of the novel, you're already confronted with, you know, there's these uh, uh, workmen throwing a kipper onto the onto the fire. Well, how do you translate kipper into any, any other language in English? You can't do it. Uh, uh, so th that problem does, that certainly does arise. I agree with you about that. Whether it's untranslatable or well, you know, really well trans uh, 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 translatable uh, is another question. I mean, I think when I was talking about the uh, uh, apparent opacity and difficulty, alienness of the society, uh, Pearl depicts to those who are not uh, English and don't know English firsthand. Uh, the same also applies, I would say, to uh, uh, what uh, is, you know, uh, manifestly one of the great, uh, greatest li 
novels in world literature, which is uh, The Dream of the Red Chamber, the Chinese novel, The Dream of the Red Chamber. I mean, that depicts a world uh, which is, you know, in many ways far more alien and stranger than anything in Pole, and it, it, with a range of characters which rivals or exceeds that in, in Pole, with gradations within it and so on, which, you know, Nessio, not only Chinese, but have a very good classical culture in, you know, in Chinese, will be lost on you. In that case, it so happens that uh, a, the, the author did actually find a, a, a staggeringly gifted uh, translator in uh, in in English and so on, who was able to, as it were, produce something which can be read and so on. In my view, I mean, with in huge enjoyment and and admiration by virtually any uh, literate English person. But uh, it still was a it was rather a fluke and so on that that was possible in my in my eyes that this one person could do that. David Hawkes. David Hawkes, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, no, it's an amazing though. achievement. I mean, is it? Is it's it... so good that, I mean, that, you know, this uh, friend of mine who taught uh, Chinese literature at, uh, at SOAS would complain, saying, well, I try to teach my students and so on, as it were, and, you know, we set them passages and so on from the Dream of the Red Chamber, but they, they all say, no, but David Hawkes, we're going to read that's much more enjoyable than read that. I mean, I think I wonder if some of the thing about Proust's um, the difficulty of translation is actually just the difficulty of Proust. You know, and Christopher Prendergast has written about that. That thing about you, you know, even native, completely fluent native French speakers get lost syntactically because yeah. the sentences are so. You, you know, you're tra- you're sort of four verbs along, yeah. and still trying to trace the the thread of thought. Yeah. Is the subjunctive and serpentine clause in, in clause in within clauses and so on extraordinary, which sort of mirrors mirrors the action of the book really, the involution and yeah. the sense of being lost. Okay, I think we've got time for one more. I was very interested in the distinction you were drawing between a Paul as an author who's very historically grounded, very interested in his particular time and place. And Proust is an author who's much more abstract, more interested in general laws of sort of human nature and the sort of existential slide towards death. I think it was one of the phrases. And I was interested if you thought that one of those projects was just superior to the other and sort of more promising, had had more to offer. Because my sense was from reading the piece and from, from hearing the talk was that even just for those projects in general, you would come down on the side of Paul. If that makes sense, uh, no, I, I wouldn't. Uh, 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 I wouldn't say that. I mean, uh, uh, the uh, greatness of of uh, uh, I do try to uh, emphasize this. The greatness of of uh, Proust's uh, uh, novel is, you know, lies in the uh, extraordinary achievement, precisely of creating a, a kind of a, a world of uh, you know a, a universe and so on of, of interiority. Which is matched certainly against a kind of teeming, as it were, social landscape, and then a kind of a, a whole range of remarkable physical geographical settings. That's you know, I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't be, I wouldn't think that you know, if somebody said to me, "Well, Proust is an inferior novelist to Pole," I'd regard that as absurd. But on the other hand, I would also think it's absurd to say that you know. Uh, Pole is kind of a greatly inferior novelist to 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 Proust. I mean, I think they're 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 not commensurate in exactly that way. I, I think one of the things that you could say about about both of them, it's actually a hallmark of of great literature, is that you wouldn't dare imagine that book existing if it hadn't been written. I mean, no, it's three thousand words long, three thousand pages long. It's about a bloke who never go, goes anywhere, never does anything, and nothing happens. No. Oh yeah, lap that up. Or, or a, a, a 1.2 million word thing of discrete. I mean, that's the astonishing thing about Paul's achievement yeah. that they're satisfying novels in their own right. right. I know that span absolutely everything in social class, from you know Welsh miners to duchesses and aristocrats, and have this sort of narrator who sits back and watches everything from high bohemia to um, you know the hippie movement 
to you know, politics of all sorts. I mean, no one would possibly conceive that was possible, I don't yeah. think, if Pohl hadn't actually written it. Um, so anyway, your guides to this world, strongly recommend Different Speed, Same Furies, Perry's new book. And he'll be signing uh, copies here now. And uh, thank you all very much for coming out. And can I ask you to thank Perry? Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.